0: Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 56. It's about World War One then, what was happening a hundred years ago this week. And it's about World War One now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is January 26, 2018, and our guests for this week include John Milton Cooper Jr., giving deeper insight into President Woodrow Wilson, Dr. Ed Lengel with our new segment, America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, looking at growing discontent in Europe. Joe Weishar, in our century in the making, an Eagle Scout's perspective. Rich Hively and Mayor Dave Casebolt from the World War I Memorial Restoration Effort in the City of Nitro, West Virginia. David O'Neill, and the restoration of a World War I anti-tank gun. And Catherine Akey, with some selections from the Centennial of World War I in social media. All that and more this week on World War I Centennial News, which is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Theo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host, Welcome to the show. Woodrow Wilson, an academic and learned man, president of Princeton University from 1902 to 1910. A progressive Democrat, seeking and winning the governorship of New Jersey, then running for and being elected to his first term as President of the United States in 1912, two years before the war broke out in Europe. His progressive agenda and his accomplishments in his first term are near legendary. His personal life is equally dynamic, losing his first wife to illness in 1914 and barely more than a year later, remarrying while still in office. By his second term campaign in 1916, the war in Europe was in full swing. The Germans had sunk the Lusitania and Wilson ran for office on a platform of America first and he kept us out of war. Within months of being sworn in to a second term, he leads the nation to war and into an unprecedented transformation politically, legally, economically, socially, and internationally. Wilson takes broad powers and wields sledgehammer transformations, nationalizes industries, quashes freedoms, and when Congress does not do his bidding, uses executive orders to move the nation into the war effort. Earlier this month, a hundred years ago, Wilson presents an agenda for a new international world order, his 14 points, instantly thrusting America into a new role as a world leader. With this as an overview, let's jump into our Wayback Machine and go back a hundred years to the third week of January 1918 in the war that changed the world. It's mid-January, 1918. With the Wilson administration taking vast power into the executive branch, some in Congress seek to rein in his power. One such incident takes place this week. Dateline, January 20, 1918. A headline in the New York Times reads, War Cabinet Bill Ready for Senate to Give Control to Council of Three. Backing Chamberlain's stand, Senate Military Committee demands reorganization of war work. So this is what was happening. Oregon's Democratic Senator, George Earl Chamberlain, who serves on the Senate Military Affairs Committee, makes a speech in New York and states, The military establishment of America has fallen down because of inefficiencies in every bureau and department of the government of the United States. And he introduces a bill into the Senate that would retake the war powers of the executive and the cabinet and put them back into the legislative branch, specifically the Senate. The White House and Wilson administration fires back. Dateline, January 22, 1918. From the headlines of the official bulletin, the Government's War Gazette, published by George Creel at the Order of the President. President Wilson answers criticism by Senator Chamberlain concerning departmental management of war, claims he was not consulted on proposed legislation. And the story includes. When President Wilson's attention was called to a speech made by Senator Chamberlain at a luncheon in New York on Saturday, he immediately inquired of Senator Chamberlain whether he had been correctly reported, and upon ascertaining from the Senator that he had been, the President felt it his duty to make the following statement. Senator Chamberlain's statement as to the present inaction and ineffectiveness of the government is an astonishing and absolutely unjustifiable distortion of the truth. As a matter of fact, the War Department has performed a task of unparalleled magnitude and difficulty with extraordinary promptness and efficiency. There have been delays and disappointments and partial miscarriages of plans, all of which have been drawn into the foreground and exaggerated by the investigations which have been in progress since the Congress assembled investigators. These drew indispensable officials of the departments constantly away from their work and officers from their commands, and contributed a great deal to such delay and confusion as has inevitably arisen." But by comparison with what has been accomplished, these things, much as they were to be regretted, were insignificant, and no mistake has been made which has been repeated. President Wilson closes with, My association and constant conference with the Secretary of War have taught me to regard him as one of the ablest public officials I have ever known. It will soon be learned whether he, or his critics understand the business at hand to say as senator chamberlain did that there is inefficiency in every department and bureau of the government is to show such ignorance of actual conditions as to make it impossible to attach any importance to his statement i am bound to infer that the statement sprang out of opposition to the administration's whole policy rather than out of any serious intention to reform its practices. President Woodrow Wilson President Woodrow Wilson is truly one of the most remarkable leaders this nation has had. And in order to help us know him better, we've invited John Milton Cooper, Jr., an American historian, author, educator, and former senior scholar at the Wilson Center to speak with us today. Welcome, John. Hi, glad to be here. John, Woodrow Wilson is considered one of the greatest American presidents ever. Was he, and and why? Well, yes, I do think he was. In fact, uh, I'm kind of surprised in these
1: polls of uh, you know, various historians and people who rate the presidents that they generally don't tend to rate Wilson higher. Uh, they rate him a little bit below his great rival, Theodore Roosevelt, and uh, I don't agree with that. Just, Just think about what what all happened during his administration. He's he's one of the great legislating presidents. He he ranks right up there with FDR and LBJ for putting through a huge and important domestic program. The the Federal Reserve, of course, is the uh, the keystone of that, but you've got the income tax, you've got the first federal child labor law, uh, you've got uh, a whole bunch of things, and of course, the uh, nomination of Louis Brandeis to the Supreme Court. And then he took us into World War I, and uh, uh, he won his war. Also, uh, a little plug for my, uh, my own profession, but uh, he's the only Ph.D. and only professional academic who's ever become president, and uh, I think that was very important to, uh, to his success. I think it's very important to uh, the kind of tone that, uh, that, he, that he gave to the office.
0: So, John, Wilson seems like a bundle of contrasting ideas. He campaigns with, he kept us out of war, but then leads the nation to war. He wants America to fight for freedom and liberty as he nationalizes industries and gags dissent and attacks freedom of speech. So the question is, how do all of these contrasting ideas reconcile?
1: Uh, I think the contrast is more apparent than real. Wilson definitely did not want to take the United States into World War One. He really, he, at one point he was talking to, a, off the record, to a sympathetic journalist and he said, if there's any alternative, for God's sake, let's take it uh that he kept us out of war that actually referred to Mexico because uh the, the danger of, of, of getting into war in Europe had actually receded Wilson had confronted the Germans over the submarine and they they backed down in the spring of 1916 so the the bigger danger was was with war in Mexico and uh his his republican opposition was was quite hawkish and wanted wanted more there and he uh he really refused to do that by the way um what he said was the world must be made safe for democracy? He didn't say we must make the world safe for democracy because he didn't believe we could do it, or we certainly not by ourselves. The repression of civil liberties during World War One is really the, the great—I think it's the greatest single blot on his uh, his presidency—and it's it's a strange one because uh, he predicted that it would happen, and he didn't want it to happen. He was very sensitive on that. Um, part of it was he let. Uh, let his cabinet members have have their head a little too much. Uh, both the attorney general and the postmaster general went after uh, various dissenters, and uh, he realized that this was happening. And, and eventually, belatedly, he started to rein it in. But by that time, the war was just about over. So that's 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 the great great blot there. He had this very uh, prim uh, image, which is mainly. From his still photographs, if you ever see any newsreels of him, he's actually a rather, rather light, lively sort, with a very expressive. And uh, he, he comes over as a very, very, but certainly controlled sort of fellow. Well, he was controlled, but he was also very, uh, uh, very passionate about about many things. So uh, I don't. I think he's a. I think he's a deep man, but not, not a complicated or not, not a uh, not a contradictory one.
0: So this is a man who had a huge effect on the nation, and indeed on the world. So what would you say his most remarkable achievement was as a president?
1: If you only could pick out the single one, funny you should ask that, because we have just observed the centennial of the 14 points. That was January 8th, January 8th, 1918. This was the speech where he laid out war aims. And basically what he did was he set out a plan for what would be a generous and non-punitive peace. He was also holding something out to the Germans and saying, look, this is what you can get in the way of a peace. This is pretty good. You sure you don't want to take this up? Well, they didn't originally. But in the fall of 1918, when, when our troops really came in and they saw that the, uh, the game was up, they then sued for peace on the basis of the 14 points. They approached Wilson, not the other Allied leaders, Wilson himself. And Wilson uh, took the ball and, and ran with it and made, made the Allies, committed the other Allies to it. What he did was he shortened the war. He shortened the war certainly by months. <clears throat> the Allied war plans called for an invasion of Germany in 1919, and the bulk of the fighting was going to be done by us, by our doughboys, because the British and French were really, uh, really, really exhausted. Think about what that would have meant, and all you have to do is look at 1944 and 1945, what the fighting in Europe was, particularly what it took to conquer Germany, and think think about a war like that in 1919. And by the way, the Bolsheviks had left. Uh, the Germans didn't have an Eastern Front anymore. They could fight, they could put all of their forces and did put all of their forces on the Western Front. This would have been a bloodbath and terribly destructive. I mean, Wilson Wilson saved hundreds of thousands, maybe even a few million lives by doing that. He shortened the war. It was his, that, I think, was his greatest, greatest achievement. He shortened that war. I mean, really shortened that war. And again, I think all you have to do is look at the, Last year or so of World War Two, uh, to see to see what uh,
0: what we were spared. John, as we hear the ongoing story of World War One on this podcast, what else should we understand about Wilson to help us keep it all and him in context?
1: Okay, again, I'm going to go back to plug for my profession. Uh, this man uh, was a student of politics. In fact, he's uh, one of the, one of the great academic political scientists of, of U.S. history. He really. Uh, had great insights into the way political systems, especially our own work. And what he did was he took what he had learned uh, and the insights and the approaches that he had, uh, that he had developed as an academic, and he put them into practice. In other words, this was a guy, you know, who got a chance to practice what he'd been preaching, teaching, preaching uh, for, uh, for several decades. Uh, And it's, uh, I think certainly in, in U.S. history, and I'm not sure I can, find an example in the other history, an example uh, that really commends uh, the study of politics as a preparation for the practice of politics. I mean, this guy, this this is wonderful. And I, today, and no, no political plugs here, but uh, t- today, uh, we seem to devalue uh, the role of intellect and the role of I- ideas in politics. And I think that's I think it's a great mistake. And I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons, several reasons that we're in such a political pickle now is that we don't appreciate it. And uh, certainly Wilson is
0: the example of this. Thank you, John. Okay, thank you. John Milton Cooper, Jr. is an American historian, author and educator. Links to his biography of President Wilson and to the Wilson Center are in the podcast notes. This week in The War in the Sky, we want to introduce you to General Billy Mitchell, a pretty extraordinary man. As World War I broke out, Billy Mitchell recognized the importance of aviation, so in 1916, he learned to fly on his own nickel. Heading to Europe on January 20, 1918, Mitchell, now a colonel, was promoted to Chief of the Air Services of the First Army. Colonel Mitchell found himself in command of more than 1,500 British, French, and American aircraft, the largest Air Force ever assembled. We'll learn more about this leader and flyer over the coming months, a man who became Chief of the Air Services this month, 100 years ago, in the War in the Sky. See the podcast notes to learn more. Welcome to the second installment of our new series, America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I, with military historian, author, and storyteller, Dr. Edward Lengel.
2: Hi, Ed. Hey, glad to be on the show, too.
0: Ed, your story this week rolls us back to September 1917, when America celebrated National Draft Day. Now, the draft wasn't the most popular new law of the land, but in New York, there was a parade and a baseball game. Tell us the story
2: so on september fourth nineteen seventeen new york city celebrates probably the most lackluster popular parade of the city's entire history thousands of men who have been drafted to serve in new york city's seventy seventh metropolitan division have assembled across manhattan and they sort of march because they haven't been trained at all yet across manhattan and more actually kind of amble and look around and enjoy the sights and see what the city is like. And they're delighted to see Teddy Roosevelt up on a grandstand waving to them, and they wave back, and they gather around him and shout and celebrate. But what they're really looking forward to is a baseball game because they've all been given free tickets to go to the polo grounds and to see the Boston Braves play against the beloved New York Giants, both of which are very good teams. There are several future Major League Baseball Hall of Famers there, including Giants manager John McGraw and one of America's greatest athletes, a 30-year-old pinch hitter, Jim Thorpe, uh, also a Native American and also a football player. And uh, they, they get ready for the game. Uh, the mayor of New York City, John Perroy Mitchell, comes out to uh, home plate and gives a short speech. He turns to the soldiers and the players and he says, Fight clean, fight fair, fight hard, and win. Well, they're ready to go. But first, Harry Barnhart, who is the leader of New York City's Community Chorus, marches out to home plate, and he has decided everybody must sing patriotic songs before the game begins, and a groan wafts through the crowd, but uh, he makes them sing anyway, and they sing one song after another, after another, after another. By the time they get to the star-spangled banner, not only is the crowd no longer paying attention, but the ball players, including Jim Thorpe, are just standing around there looking bored, and that's not good enough for Barnhart, so he turns to the players and demands that they begin to sing, too. Once again, it's one song after another, after another, and everybody's utterly sick of it. They just want the game to begin. Barnhart hears this chanting begin up in the stands, and he wonders what it is that he assumes is that just that they want more songs. But in fact, they're simply thirsty. They've been gobbling free ham sandwiches all day, but they haven't had anything to drink, and they're chanting, we want soda, we want soda. Well, as it just so happens, there are a good number of Boy Scouts around, and Barhart sends the Boy Scouts up into the stands with big baskets of soda pop, and the poor Boy Scouts get mobbed by the draftees who take all the soda pop. And by that point, Barnhart is done, and the game can finally begin, it doesn't start well. The Braves go ahead two to nothing, uh, but in the eighth inning, one of the Giants ball players gets a run off of a double, and so it's a two to one game. The crowd now is getting excited. It's a, it's a good close game. They're looking forward to the ninth inning. But again, there's another interruption as General Bell, who is the leader of the 77th Division, walks out to home plate and gives a long, incredibly dull speech about pest control. Well, that sucks the life out of the game by the time General Bell finally leaves. The uh, draftees are dejected. Uh, they're not really that interested in the game anymore, and in any case, the Braves score another run and go ahead 3-1, to one, and the soldiers uh, shuffle out of the stadium with that kind of anticlimactic uh, send-off to training. It's a wonderful anecdote. It was, in many ways, an utterly uh, hilarious day from Teddy Roosevelt to this game, and it's one of the strangest games in Major League Baseball history.
0: So, Ed, what are you going to tell us about next week?
2: I'm going to tell you about another great spectacle in New York City. This one, exactly 100 years ago, took place at New York City's Hippodrome, when also troops of the 77th Division, but these are men who would go on to become part of the Lost Battalion, go on stage at the Hippodrome in front of a crowd of thousands of civilians, and demonstrate what they thought it would be like to fight on the Western Front, simulating trench warfare and all the rest. It was a great spectacle, and I look forward to telling that story.
0: Ed Langle is an American military historian, author, and our new segment host for America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. There are links in the podcast notes to Ed's post about baseball and his website as an author. Now with us is Mike Schuster former National Public Radio correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. Mike, your story this week is about how the war is being considered in Europe as we roll into 1918. What's the headline?
3: That's right, Theo. and the headline could read, Americans now in German gun sights. Sentiments strong for continued war and for ending it. A new theme emerges, blame the Jews. And this is special to the Great War Project. The desire to continue the war and the hope of ending it were in conflict in every nation, so writes historian Martin Gilbert of the balance of sentiment in Europe a century ago. In public, at least, the moral imperative of victory was still being publicly asserted and widely held. Britain has two million men under arms, and it is planning to bring another 420,000, despite shortages in troops and equipment everywhere, reports Gilbert. Hunger and privation at home were as much of an influence for war weariness as the killing. A secret British report, based on a careful reading of British intercepted correspondence, revealed a decided increase in letters in favor of an immediate peace. This weariness is not confined to Britain. In Berlin, at nearly the same moment in Germany a century ago, reports Gilbert, more than 400,000 went on strike demanding peace. Within 48 hours, these strikes had spread to six of the cities. The government reacts swiftly and firmly, declaring martial law in Berlin and Hamburg and drafting many of the striking workers into the army. But the hunger that the British naval blockade had exacerbated could not be assuaged by martial law or compulsory service. Reports Gilbert, civilians were being forced to eat dogs and cats. Bread was made from a mixture of potato peelings and sawdust. Wartime privations, writes historian Adam Hochschild, inflamed an angry nationalism in Germany, producing a foretaste of the hysteria that a quarter of a century later would reach a climax of unimaginable proportions. Ominously making the fraudulent claim that Jews were shirking military duty, right-wing forces demanded and won a special census of Jews in the army. Anti-Semitic books, pamphlets, and oratory proliferated. Gilbert observes, by this time, a hundred years ago, the head of the pan-German League was calling for a ruthless struggle against Jews. Nevertheless, there is more tentative talk of negotiated peace. That sentiment emerges from Vienna in words from both the Austrian foreign minister and the new German chancellor. Meanwhile, significant developments on the American side. On January 18th, a century ago, writes historian Gilbert, a full American division, the first entered the front line. It had been sent there to gain experience of holding the line and took no offensive action. As soon as the Germans discovered that Americans were opposite them, they tried to demoralize them, launching a raid on an American listening post, killing two soldiers, wounding two, and capturing one. Then they ambushed an American patrol in no man's land, killing four, wounding two, and capturing two. The inaction of the Americans causes much consternation on the American side but they are still held back. At the same time, thanks to the Russian collapse, this leaves the Germans free to move more than three and a half million German troops, reports historian Norman Stone, with the horses to keep matters mobile. In other words, the German superiority could be concentrated with crushing effect at any single spot on the line. And that's the news this week from The Great War Project.
0: Mike Schuster from The Great War Project blog. For videos on World War One, go see our friends at The Great War Channel on YouTube. This week's new episodes include Assassination Attempt on Lenin, and Central Powers Occupation of Italy, and British Pistols of World War I, and finally Road Trips 2018. Next month, we've invited the host of the Great War channel, Indy Nidell, to join us and talk about how hosting this YouTube channel for the past four years has affected him and his perspective on World War I. Meanwhile, follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. It's time to fast forward into the present with World War I centennial news now. <laughs> This section isn't about history, but rather it explores what's happening now to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. In Commission News, as we mentioned last week, the U.S. Mint has released a special 2018 World War I commemorative silver dollar, but also they created World War I service medallions commemorating the five military branches that fought in World War I, the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the brand new Air Corps, later to become the Air Force, and the Coast Guard. These five special collector sets of commemorative silver dollar and service medallions are being minted in a very limited quantity, and the only time in history ever that you'll be able to buy them is between right now and February 20th, 2018. So you have less than a month to snag a piece of history with a collector set, Get one, get all five, but get them now. Go to one slash coin, that's slash C-O-I-N, or click the link in the podcast notes. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, clearly you already have some interest or connection to the centennial of World War One. This is the remembrance of the centennial that you're going to want to keep and pass on to the next generation. But you have to do it right now. Thank you. It's time for our new 2018 segment, A Century in the Making, America's World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. As our regular listeners know, we're building a national World War I memorial at Pershing Park in the nation's capital. It's a big project, and it's complicated, and it's hard, and it's been a long time coming. So in this segment, we're bringing you along on an insider's journey that explores this grand undertaking, the adventure, and the people behind it. Joe Weishar is our brilliant young visionary who won the international design competition for this memorial. And he's also an Eagle Scout, a designation that just predates World War I. In fact, it turns out that the first Eagle Scout award was given to a scout Arthur Rose Eldred in 1912. Now, Eldred actually goes on to join the Navy during World War I. He serves on convoys in the Atlantic and on a submarine chaser in the Mediterranean, surviving both a sinking ship and the Spanish flu. Last week, Joe spoke at the Boy Scouts' annual Midwest Regional Fundraiser. As an Eagle Scout himself, Joe helps us continue to strengthen the connection between the Boy Scouts and World War I. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Teo. Thanks for having me back. So, Joe, when you spoke at the event last week, was it scouts, scout leaders, or others? Who, who was the audience?
4: Um, so, it ended up being mostly scout leaders, and probably should have thought ahead. Uh, it was on Thursday last week, and so a lot of scouts weren't able to get out of school. How were you and your story received? Uh, it was received very well. I was speaking at an event in uh, both in Joplin, Missouri, and in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and... Being from that area, I think my story resonates very well with troops and scouts in those regions, especially with the, the local connection, the heartland, kind of the country connection, and then also being a young person involved in this project.
0: So Joe, do you think your scouting experience influenced you or prepared you in some way in entering and ultimately prevailing and winning the international design competition for the National World War I Memorial?
4: It definitely was probably one of the early challenges of my life uh, to get my Eagle Scout award. And anybody who's been through that process, I think, knows how much work it really involves. My Eagle Scout project was my first kind of architectural undertaking at the time. It was one of those things where I didn't want to deal with a city... Organization ever again because that was the hardest part. I just wanted to build things, <laughs> uh, and somehow now I've managed to find the biggest city organization in the country and deal with their process. So it's uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition to be sure.
0: Joe, do you think that scouts are aware of the connection of scouting in World War One?
4: Not as much as I think they should be. Some of the facts that I spewed off last week were new and surprising for people to hear so the drives for collecting peach pits that went on in georgia and across the south the collection of different woods and things for things like propellers um, and gun stocks um, and the selling of war bonds i mean was really the first kind of organized fundraiser that the boy scouts partook in
0: well something interesting that came up this week in our research about world war one a hundred years ago let me read you an excerpt from the January 21st, 1918 issue of the New York Times. The headline read, War task for Boy Scouts will be dispatch bearers for public information committee. And the story reads, President Wilson has sent the following letter to Colin H. Livingstone, President of the Scouts National Council. My dear Mr. Livingstone, I desire to entrust the Boy Scouts of America with a new and important commission, to make them the government dispatch bearers in carrying to the homes of their community the pamphlets on the war prepared by the Committee for Public Information. The excellent service performed by the Boy Scouts in the past encourages me to believe that this new task will be cheerfully and faithfully discharged. Yours sincerely, President Woodrow Wilson. So Joe, any thoughts or comments on the story?
4: I think it's a great kind of fit for where we are now because one of my goals kind of in going to uh, the regional event last week and getting to talk with scouts and leaders is to get them engaged and to participate in the Centennial. I think through other podcasts, you guys have done a wonderful job of talking about some of our other programs uh, like the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program, Um, our stories of service, the memorial hunters, those different efforts. And the Boy Scouts are really a natural fit for those types of programs. And so I love it with that, that article that even a hundred years ago, people were looking for ways to get the youth of this country involved and participating in, in the wartime efforts.
0: Joe, great to have you on the show again.
4: Yeah. Thanks for having me. I look forward to coming back.
0: Joe Weishar is the winning designer of the International Design Competition for the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., the design lead for the project, and an Eagle Scout. We're going to continue to bring you an insider's view of the stories about the epic undertaking to create America's World War I Memorial in our nation's capital. Learn more at one ccorg memorial, or follow the link in the podcast notes. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. Soldiers in war treasure the personal effects that they carry with them into battle. Photographs of loved ones, letters from home, trench art they might have spent hours creating, cigarettes and souvenirs found on the battlefield. It's their precious connection to the other reality. Now, in the heat of battle, it's easy to misplace or lose your trinkets, especially when a soldier's wounded and gets moved from the front by stretcher-bearers or other men of the medical services. For the British in World War I, with typical English wry humor, they renamed their Royal Army Medical Corps, the RAMC, to Rob All My Comrades. They gave a similar treatment to their mail services, the Royal Engineers Postal Services, the R-E-P-S. They got recast as postal pilferers with R-E-P-S equaling rob every poor soldier. (laughs) It's trench humor. Rob all my comrades and rob every poor soldier. Recast acronyms from the trenches of World War I and this week's Speaking World War I phrases. See the podcast notes to learn more. For our spotlight in the media section, we have an exciting story this week. England's Imperial War Museum has teamed up with famed director Peter Jackson and asked him how he would tell the story of World War I. The director of the Lord of the Rings trilogy took on the challenge and announced a new project this week. Here's Peter Jackson speaking about telling the story of World War I in a new and innovative way.
5: I'm really excited to talk to you about a new project I've been working on with 1418 Now and the Imperial War Museum. The Imperial War Museum approached me a couple of years ago um, and they asked me what could be done with their original First World War footage, in a way, just to present it in a way that hadn't really been seen before. And I thought about all the digital technology that exists today um, and, and can we restore that footage and make it look new and make it look sharp and, uh, you know, in a way that goes way beyond what has ever been done before. So we did some tests and uh, the results were, I mean, they really surprised me. They, they were unbelievable. We can make this grainy, flickery kind of, you know, sped up footage look like it was shot in the last week or two. It looks like it was shot with high definition cameras. It's so sharp and clear now. And so we are making a film and, and, and we're making a film not. usual film that you would expect on the first world war we're making a a um, a a film that that Shows this incredible footage, of which the faces of the of the, of the men just jump out at you. It's the faces, it's the people that come to life in this film. It's the human beings that were actually there, that were thrust into this extraordinary situation that defined their lives in many cases. And we also, in accompanying these these restored images, we have gone through about six hundred hours of um, audio interviews with with our veterans. You know, in the nineteen sixties, seventies, eighties, we've made a movie which is is to is to show the. experience Variants of what it was like to fight in this war not strategy battles you know we we don't talk about any, any historical you know aspects of the war particularly we just talk about the social and the human experience of being in the war and it's actually amazed me what some of these people, or what some of the veterans, I mean their, their interviews I've never heard before and, and they talk about it in a way that's surprising. We have a sort of a cliched version of the war, I guess. We, we now, a hundred years later, we have made up our own minds what, this, what the First World War was like. But I think it's going to be very surprising when you listen to the voices of the men that fought the war and with their own experience, they had to live it, what they had to eat, what they, how they slept at night, um, you know, how how they coped with the fear. Um, and, you know, that combined with these incredibly sharp images is going to, I think, be quite a surprising film. I look forward to getting this film finished as a, as a contribution to the centenary of the First World War, and uh, I'm very, very excited about it.
0: Follow the link in the podcast notes to see some example footage of what Peter Jackson was talking about and to learn more about the project. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. This week, we're profiling the living memorial to World War I in the city of Nitro, West Virginia. They're currently in the running for a round two grant. With us to tell us about their city and their World War One project are Rich Hively, the president of the Nitro Historic Commission, and Dave Casebolt, mayor of the city of Nitro. Welcome, gentlemen.
6: Thank
7: you, Taya. We appreciate the opportunity.
0: Mayor Casebolt, why do you call the city of Nitro a living memorial to World War One, And where did the name Nitro come from?
7: Well, let me tell you. Uh... In in 1917, shortly after the war began, the the, uh, Senate passed uh, the Deficiency Appropriations Act. That was on October the 6th of 1917. This act allowed for the building of three large gunpowder plants capable of producing about 500,000 pounds a day. So they immediately sent engineers out looking for an area to build these plants. And the, the first location they selected was an area just a little bit west of Charleston, West Virginia. They passed this act on October the 6th, and a little bit over two months later, they're breaking ground to build a uh, gunpowder-producing complex. And it went went from farmland to a sprawling complex that employed over 100,000 people. So it literally became a boom town.
0: And how did it get the name nitro?
7: Well, Nitro. most
8: people think of nitroglycerin, but that's incorrect. Uh, The name nitro comes from nitrocellulose, which is the main ingredient in gunpowder. There were several names suggested for the city when it was started in 1917. Uh, one of them was actually uh, Red Wap, which is powder spelled backwards. Uh, I'd hate to be called the city of Red Wap. So I'm, I'm thankful we are the city of Nitro, from Nitro Cellulose, the main ingredient in gunpowder.
0: Rich, what are you proposing for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program?
8: Well, Nitro has had a museum since 1982. Uh you know, we are a military community. Uh we're only here because of World War One and we want to recognize that. Uh we've had a museum of some sort, uh, you know, since nineteen eighty two. It's small, uh it got smaller, then it got bigger back and forth. We are now blessed with a four thousand foot facility. Uh we have a lot of military archives, uh City of Nitro archives. Uh we need some additional Items like mannequins and display cases, things like that, that we can present what we have appropriately. Uh, we really have some great things that, in the museum, but we really need to improve on how we present those and on our exhibits. Uh, that's what we are asking for, uh, in the grant that we, uh, propose.
7: NISO is really proud of its history. We are, we have actually contracted with an engineering group that is going to present to us next week a beautification plan that incorporates our history. Uh, when you think of Tombstone, Arizona, you think of a western town. We want people when they think of nitro west virginia they we want them thinking of a World War I town. Everything we are doing in town uh, encompasses our history every 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 event we have, we bring our history into it. We are creating a sense of place for our children that live here, a strong identity uh, making them uh, as part of our community. so when they leave this community. They will always talk about Nitro. So uh, we, are, we are very proud of that history.
0: Well, it sounds like a fascinating place. And if I come to the city of Nitro, what will my experience be?
7: Well, that's what we are in the process of creating now. We, are, Like I said, we have built uh, our Living Memorial Park. All of our advertising, all of our marketing for our city includes our history. So we are starting to create that identity in the future. We are going to create that when, that when you're driving by night you're going to know it's a World War I city. We're already doing that now. We're doing a good job of that now. But you're going to be able to live it when you come into town. There will be World War I memorabilia, things that people can see. We already have put up street signs. All of our street signs down First Avenue have a World War I soldier on it, a Doughboy soldier in the sign. Uh, so everything we're doing in this town is to remind people of our history.
0: Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us today.
7: Thank you. We appreciate the opportunity.
0: Rich Hively is president of the Nitro Historic Commission, and Dave Casebolt is the mayor of the city of Nitro, West Virginia. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project by following the link in the podcast notes. This week, we're launching another new segment for 2018, World War I War Tech we frequently come across technology from the war that's utterly fascinating. And we'd like to share some of these technological curiosities with you, not just weapons, but also medical, communications, and other tech that sprang up at the time. But today, it's all about a bigger than an elephant gun, shoulder-fired German behemoth designed to shoot tanks. With us is David L. O'Neill, creator of the World War I Preservation Collection, who recently finished restoring this 1918 tank of air or tank gun. David, welcome.
6: Greetings, tail. How are you doing? I'm
0: doing well. Thanks. So to start, before we get onto this mean Mauser, how did you get into restoring world war one era machinery?
6: I've been collecting world war one artifacts for about the past 40 years. I created the world war one preservation collection to share the collections online, I occasionally run into very poor condition artifacts. and my background is in design, uh, engineering design, experimental equipment for aircraft, in flight test. So I have an expanded knowledge of materials, paints, metallurgy, uh, wood repair, and skills of that nature. So it naturally falls into line for restoration work. And then, of course, with my background in in collecting and history, uh, it all just kind of falls in line.
0: David, tell us about this 1918 Mauser. How did you come across the one that you are restoring, And what makes this a unique and special tech of the era?
6: Well, I came across this particular gun. It was in a house fire, and it was badly burned. All that was left of this gun, serial number 5043, was just the metal components. I'd say probably 80% of the metal components were still there, but that's all there was. The 1918 Mauser is an important gun in World War I history just because it's the world's first anti-tank gun. It came about because of the British attack on Cambrai, November of 1917. It was the British first assault using multi-tanks. And it surprised the Germans so badly that they had to come up with a way to fight off the tank. What they did was they built the Mauser tank of air around an existing anti-tank round called the TUF round. It's T-U-F and it stands for Tankunflieger, which is tank and aircraft. The Germans were in development of a combination anti-tank, anti-aircraft gun. They had developed the round for it, but that particular machine gun wasn't going to come out until very late in the war, and so they needed to stopgap measures. so they created the tank Gewehr, tank gun, as you said earlier, and that was rushed and put into production to take on the the British and French tanks. Well, I understand they ultimately made 15,000 of them. It was only made in 1918, so... Yes, it's a lot of guns for the short period of time, but ultimately in numbers as compared to the rest of the weapons that were made during the war, it's it's just a, a blip.
0: So this gun, just describing it for a moment, sort of is uh, stands shoulder high. It just looks like a giant blow up. And on your website, we see a lot of images of the gun at every stage of repair and rebuild. Can you tell us a little bit about the process and did you use any high tech to restore the World War I tech?
6: Yeah, yeah, we did. Some of the metal pieces that were missing, like the front sight and there was a recoil lug inside, we used 3D modeling, basically had to get original components, measure those and then recreate them in the CAD world, computer aided drafting. So we made 3D models of those and then... Once we had those, drawings were created of those parts, and then they were sent out to machine shops so they could be manufactured. Once I, I got those parts back, they, we were able to replace those back into the gun. The gun stock, all the wooden components were burned away. We didn't have those anymore. And a fellow collector, Hayes Autopolic out of Missoula, Montana, he graciously allowed us to copy his original tank Gewehr stock and we sent it off to a replicator and they actually replicated a brand new stock out of the original material, which was ash. And then we uh, fitted the gun components back into the new stock and started our recreation from there.
0: So what happens to the Mauser now?
6: It stays in the World War One preservation collection because it's such a rare piece. Now, 100 years later, I would venture to say that there's probably less than 500 of these that still exist in the world today. So it's going to stay in the World War I preservation collection, but I would be open to putting the gun on loan to museums so they could show it. And it could be regional if, if anybody wanted to contact me and, and take it out on loan.
0: Okay, last question. What's your next project?
6: I just finished this project, so I don't have anything lined up yet. However, uh, there's a lot of uh, artillery monuments that are out there that a lot of these artillery pieces have been sitting outside for the past hundred years after World War One, and a lot of them are in great need of restoration. They're covered with a quarter inch of paint they just don't look like they used to back in World War One. I. I wouldn't mind taking on some of those if I can find particular monument pieces that I could do. And then I would always be interested in restoring a World War I motorcycle, like a Harley or an Indian motorcycle, into like a dispatch rider from World War I. Yeah, that'd be really cool to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds great. That does sound great. Oh Well, uh, I thank you for coming on and telling us about this giant beast of a gun, and uh, good luck with your projects. Thanks for having me, Teo. David L. O'Neill is the creator of the World War I Preservation Collection. Learn more about the collection and view images of the Tank Air restoration by following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz: the Centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what did you pick for us this week?
9: Hey Teo! Both of our stories this week take us down into the trenches. First, we'll head over to Atlas Obscura to an article we shared this week about a rare example of a well-preserved World War I trench. The trench is part of the British lines in Sanctuary Wood, also known as Hill 62. The Belgian farmer who once owned the land and returned to it after the war chose to leave the trenches as he found them. Sanctuary Wood now operates as a memorial and museum and when you visit you can climb down into the ruins of the original trenches and the museum includes many items the farmer found and collected over the years on his property. Rifles, German steel helmets riddled with bullets and a collection of period stereoscope photographs of the battlefield. You can see images of the trenches, dugouts and shell holes at Sanctuary Wood by visiting the link in the podcast notes. Lastly for the week, we'll head to Kent, Ohio, where schoolchildren recently got a very hands-on lesson about World War I. Armed with homemade cardboard pistols, rifles, and machine guns, and a few snowballs here and there, ninth grade students of Theodore Roosevelt High School waged a mock battle, complete with generals barking orders and medics running over to attend to the wounded, dragging them away from the battle on sleds over the snow. This exercise was a first for the school involving 50 advanced world history students divided into French and German forces. Each student received a card with their role and tasks to execute during the simulation and after. Generals who designed battle plans and helped build fortifications would have to write condolence letters for lost troops. Soldiers would pen journals, and medics would record their cases and actions, while journalists would assemble a newspaper account of the action and interviews. After the mock battle, the students enjoyed hot chocolate and genuine army MREs, meals ready to eat. Read more about this unique project by following the link in the podcast notes. And that's it this week for The Buzz.
0: And thank you for listening to another episode of World War I Centennial News. We also want to thank our guests, John Milton Cooper, Jr., author, educator, and historian. Ed Lengel, military historian, author, and storyteller. Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. Joe Weishar, architect and National World War I Memorial designer. Rich Hively and Mayor Dave Casebolt from the City of Nitro, West Virginia. David O'Neill, creator of the World War I Preservation Collection. Catherine Akey, the show's line producer, and the commission's social media director. Special thanks to Eric Marr for his research help, and I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This podcast is a part of that, and we thank you for listening. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And, of course, we're building America's national World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww one cn. On iTunes and Google Play at ww one and on Amazon Echo or other Alexa enabled devices, just say Alexa, play ww one Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at www.1cc, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world.
6: You've got lots of time, to so spend it, write a cheery note and
5: send it, it may help some fellow on his way. There is pen and paper handy, send them cigarettes and candy, help those Yankee doodles
6: and these the go For a friendly sort of letter makes the fellow feel much better, it's a little bit of sunshine
0: R-E-P-S, Royal Engineers Postal Services, or really exceptional podcast stories.
7: (laughs) I love acronyms. So long.